Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Dr. Robin, how are you? Welcome to Monday. Welcome to Monday. It's like Groundhog Day. Like we're in that movie. Every Monday as like, I feel like I wake up and I hear the music and I watch, you know, Bill Murray open his eyes and wonder, oh my God, I'm, I'm here again. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it was another Monday like that for me. I woke up, I was like, I don't really want to get out of bed, but I have to get out of bed because I've got work to do. And then I remembered that slog. Yeah. Yeah. But then I remembered it's Monday, which means I get to cook my sweet potato hash. You're such, you, you are my favorite creature of like ritual. You, I mean, you are, there are very few people in my life who, who curate ritual like you do. And yeah, you I mean it, it's Monday. So yes, it's sweet potato hash day. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I decided, and I, I want to run this by cause maybe people on the podcast who are listening have some ideas, but I've been eating um, the sweet potato hash since the beginning of the year, every day for breakfast. And, right. and when I run out, then my partner, Aaron, um, graciously gives me some of the oatmeal that they've made for themselves and whatnot, um, which is also very good. But um, I'm really stuck on the sweet potato hash because – and you could also eat it too because it has turkey bacon in it. So um, we that's a meal that we could share together because I know you don't do anything with eyelashes, but I digress. Correct. Um, Correct. I'm really curious about including maybe some chile into my sweet potato hash. And so... Yes. I'm surprised you don't do that already. Well, so I put um, the dried chipotle pepper in it. Okay. Um, and, and I put onion and garlic and a bell pepper. But I'm actually curious about because I, you know, I grew up on chiles all the time in my food in Texas. And so I just feel curious about, should I add a jalapeno to it, a serrano or a poblano? Uh, and, and how would that shift... Like it would probably make it amazing, but that's where I'm, my culinary imagination is heading toward. So listeners, I, I want you, I want you all to know that you are experiencing the planning of the Activist Theology podcast narrative in real time, um, because I had no idea that we were going to be talking about breakfast today. Um, there are parts of this podcast planning that I'm very aware of, but this introduction is really just always like a crapshoot for us. <laughs> and if you'd asked me this morning, what do you think Robin and, and Anna are going to talk about in the intro to the podcast? Like breakfast would not have come up high on that list, if, if even be mentioned at all. Um, but so here we I are. say I affirm that you should put anything in that delicious hash that you want. Um, I would also wonder um, how some like if I if there's any like crunch in it. Like I'm somebody that loves crunch in that kind of thing, yeah. like toasted pumpkin seeds or oh. like toasted sunflower seeds, like something that can kind of give it a little like, you know crunchy texture that yeah I, to me. I mean i'm a big fan of pepitas and i mm -hmm. dose yes. pepitas and yep. so, so that is and, my... and pepitas are actually a really good source of fat and i think maybe some protein so right i could totally we could build a cookbook around sweet potato hash no in the exact same way <laughs> no we are not starting a band and we are not writing a cookbook okay. we have got too much shit going in our worlds and there's there is there is there are things to save um we, <laughs> every time you you either want to start a band with me or you want to write a cookbook i'm gonna i'm gonna say hard no to both i love you but i will say that <laughs> since 
I um, had access to the first regimen of the Moderna virus on Friday. Yes. That this means that you and I actually get to be in person very soon. Yes. Which also means I could cook you sweet potato hash when I come. Correct. Correct. So yes, friends. So Robin is correct. Robin got their first vaccine late last week. Um, I am scheduled to get my first on Wednesday of this week. So we're close on the schedule to one another to being vaccinated and um, really, really grateful that, um, that, that that is happening. Look, there's all kinds of conversations around privilege and who is how how the vaccine is accessible to folks and how um, certain communities are really finding it difficult Mm -hmm. to gain access. It is not lost on Robin and I that the accessibility piece and the privilege piece is um, something that we are very grateful for that we do not take for granted. Um, But it does also mean that there will be some sharing of the kitchen and sharing of a bottle of bourbon in our very, very near future, because we have been given the gift of the vaccine. Yeah. So, so I feel really excited about that. Yeah. You know, the conversation around the p- pandemic, I mean, we, we will continue to talk about it because it's something that needs to be talked about, but um, I shared this with you yesterday. Um, you know, uh, I, I have several friends here in Chattanooga who have been, um, who have been kind of part of this pandemic butterfly effect of um, what is happening during the the just the sen- the dread the sense of dread and the sense of hopelessness that people are experiencing during these times. I have a very good friend who on um, Thursday was held up at gunpoint in broad daylight. Um, a young young gentleman demanded her car keys, demanded her phone. Um, thankfully, she was uninjured and he ran away and they were able to, to find him. Um, and then, you know, we have friends whose house was broken into on Saturday night um, while one of the partners was asleep in her bedroom. Um, the perpetrator actually entered her bedroom while she was there asleep in the bed. Um, There's a desperation Mm -hmm. um, that we are seeing that it, that is really causing people to, to um, have to ask themselves hard questions about what they're, how they are going to survive these days. And this understanding of survival and this understanding of trauma um, was on full display last week for us um, as we talked deeply about what was going on in, in Texas with the ice and snowstorm that that hit the state and, and put millions of people uh, without power and without drinkable water. And, I mean, you know, on our episode last week, we tackled a lot of the why mm-hmm. around how we got there, how, 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 how this, this happened and, and could have happened again. And we're really grateful that this week we get to continue that yeah. conversation on survival and mm-hmm. on our theological understanding of what it means to be, um, you know, doing good work in the public sphere around um, specifically in Texas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, I, can I just add that as I was reflecting on, um, you know, after you and I FaceTime last night, and you shared with me about our mutual friends and and your friend who was held up by gunpoint, it got me to thinking about the stories that shape us, mm-hmm. and and that um, right now the story that is shaping us is is actually a story that accelerates things like scarcity, disposability, yeah. yes, limited access, right? And and that when we are shaped by story as I believe that we are, um, theologically and ethically, it it actually shows up in our behaviors. It shows up in our yes. lived practices, right? And so um I know that you and I both are concerned about not just how do we help people connect the dots, 
but actually how do we help people live in a way that um that honors this sort of shared you know story that we are all participating in building right. that doesn't accelerate harm correct yeah how do we how do we shift that narrative how do yeah. we change change that conversation and i i think we have a chance to to lean into that today a little bit and and so i feel super excited i think so too yeah so friends um as we are as we sometimes do um robin and i have chosen very intentionally to invite on the episode today um a voice that we think is important in this conversation but we also want to recognize the privilege that we and he bring to the work um we are inviting into this space um, a cisgender, straight, white man. And as we do this, we want to acknowledge that this type of invitation can seem problematic to some of you. We want you to know that we listen to you. We recognize this. Um, we are very intentional about these invitations. And we really do so only when we feel like the person contributing to this space is integral in the conversation. And so, um, as is customary, we will, you know, be asking um, our friend how, you know, he is divesting of his privilege and his patriarchy within the organization that he's a part of. Um, but we just wanted to let you know that we recognize the, the challenges that um, cisgender, straight whiteness and maleness brings to um, the public platform. Um, and we have um, extended this invitation intentionally. We are really happy this week to um, welcome to the Activist Theology podcast a Texas politician. Um, James Tallarico is a representative um, in the Texas State House. He represents District 52, um, and he is uh, a former school teacher, which makes my heart really happy. My mama. Um, is a is a retired um, school teacher, um, and I just I have a I have a real um, I just really believe that the way that we educate our children matters, and good teachers are are hard to find. Um, and so we're really thrilled that we're going to have a conversation with um, Representative Tallarico today about what's continuing to happen in Texas and how the bigger conversation around the disaster last week and the extended pandemic um, are, are going to shape um, what's happening in the state and, and, and in, in areas even, even farther extending than Texas. Representative James Tallarico, welcome to the Activist Theology Podcast. Thank you so much for having me and inviting me into this space. I'm, I'm honored to be here. Well, we're thrilled to have you. Um, I gave our listeners a, just a very slight, you know, short, um, brief introduction. Short and sweet. Um, short and sweet. Short and sweet. <laughs> Not salty. So you got you got out on that one because sometimes she can be salty. Well, I don't. I don't know him that well yet, right. Robin. Yeah. I mean, right. uh, at the end, I'll start throwing shade. Yeah. But okay. you know, until until we get there, yeah. you know, he's off the hook. Um, so, I, I, but I would, in all seriousness, I would love for you to just give our listeners a little bit better of an understanding of who you are, of of how you come at this conversation. Um, would love to hear a little bit about how you got introduced to us um, at Activist Theology, um, and just you know, just let our folks know kind of kind of who you are and and what kind of work you're doing. Yeah, well, as I mentioned to, to you both, um, I'm a longtime listener, first time caller. So very excited to be here. Um, Dr. Robin, when you um, started following me on Twitter, I, I you know, couldn't contain my uh, my inner fanboy because um, I, I uh, read your book last year and um, and it continues to inspire me and y'all's work continues to inspire me. Um, and y'all talk so much about story. Um, so I guess if I were to tell you my brief story, I, I should probably start at the beginning, like, like all good stories do. Um, I was born to a, a single mom here in, in Austin, Texas, um, who worked heroically to provide for me. Um, and, uh, and she, um, took that experience of being, um, a survivor of, of domestic abuse and being a single mom, single working mom, 
and turn that into kind of an activist spirit. And so she took me um, to my first rally when I was in third grade um, for hate crimes legislation in Texas, back when George W. Bush was was our governor. Um, so we were outside the the governor's mansion. I think it was only you know twenty of us, um, and uh, you know continued to take me to to rallies and marches and lobby days throughout my adolescence, um, which was such a a, a great. Uh, kind of lesson for me about the importance of, of politics and being being political and using your privilege um, to help dismantle systems of oppression. Um, and so when I graduated college, as you mentioned, uh, I decided to become a public school teacher because what better way to do that work than, than on the ground in a public school? Um, right. and, and, and Dr. Robin will appreciate this, but I, I taught in, uh, in San Antonio, Texas, mm-hmm. uh, and taught on the west side of the city, which is a beautiful and historic Mexican-American neighborhood and also one of the poorest zip codes in our entire state. Uh, and I taught sixth grade language arts um, at Rhodes Middle School, home of the Fighting Wildcats. And, uh, you know, my my students struggled every day against the, the systems and obstacles that were standing in their way. And I did my very best to, to help them break down those obstacles. But, you know, I realized that no matter how good of a teacher I was in room 112 at Rhodes Middle School, um, it was never going to deliver the kind of systemic solutions that my students and their families very much deserved. So I I uh, led an, an education nonprofit, which helped me kind of elevate my impact kind of one step above the classroom. But, you know, I was still kind of working within the, the game that was set up by our state government. And so when a when a, um, a seat in the state legislature opened up in my hometown of Round Rock, Texas, just north of Austin, uh, I threw my hat in the ring. And I was 28 years old, had never run for office before. It was a Republican-held seat. I'm a Democrat, by the way, but uh, it had been it had been held by Republicans since since before I was in kindergarten. And um, and I I launched my campaign explicitly on being an educator, on being a teacher, and you know, with the help of a lot of people, including my former students. Um, got elected with 51% of the vote uh, in wow. 2018. So barely slipped by there. And so now I yeah. serve in the state house and um, I get to do uh, a lot of the work that I care most about, which is education policy. I love this story. And when you and I were were conversing on Twitter, I said, now I just want you to know, like, these are the things that you should know about me. And one of the things that I mentioned to you is that, you know, I'm an ordained Baptist clergy person and and you fired back and you're like, well, I'm just a boring cis white male, (laughs) Uh, but I'm Presbyterian. And I went to this activist church, you know, and, and I, you know, as a theologian and also, you know, as a, as a professor who teaches the discipline, um, I feel really curious about, you know, your, your church background and being Presbyterian and what, how does that identity inform your work in the world or how you live out your theology? Yeah. I I love that. Uh, I told you I was a boring, straight, cis white man. And then I had a Presbyterian to spice it up Um, because, you know, that's, that's really the, (laughs) Yeah. That's really the, the interesting part. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I mentioned my, my mother's radicalization. Like she was a, um, a preacher's daughter herself from South Texas um, and was raised kind of in a conservative um, Christian environment. And But she joined this church in on the outskirts of Austin, right outside of Austin City Limits, uh, called St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church. And it was led by Dr. Jim Rigby, who continues to lead the church today and um, Dr. Jim, which is what I call him, he baptized me when I was four years old and, um, and uh, performed my, the invocation when I was sworn in the Texas House. You know, he is kind of proudly part of a, a kind of the Christian anarchist tradition, um, which is so strange kind of growing up, kind of being in Texas, this culturally conservative place, but, but having this kind of radical faith tradition that he draws upon. Um, and that's, I think, what what turned my mother from, um, you know, a single working mom into the, kind of this this activist. Um, and uh, and that certainly contributed to, to my uh, my upbringing, my worldview. And, you know, it's it's a strange place for me to sit in because I work in the belly of the beast in the Texas State House. Right. Where so many morally reprehensible policies and laws are created. Um, and I can, and I, I'm in the minority as a progressive Democrat, 
And so I'm kind of having to do incremental changes around the margins wherever I can to make things less terrible. And so going back to my home church on Sundays is, is a place where I can kind of dream of the way the world ought to be. While when I go to work on Monday in the state house, I'm kind of thinking about what, how the world can be given some tight political limitations. Um, and I feel like those two things balance, balance each other out and help keep me sane and, and keep my eyes on the prize, um, to use the old civil rights movement phrase um, of, of thinking about what, where we're trying to head instead of getting lost in what can be done on, you know, on Tuesday, tomorrow in the state house. So my background as a United Methodist pastor um, is one of, um, you know, I am probably, I'm, I, I would assume kind of like Dr. Jim in the way that I'm, um, you know, often trying to figure out how the how to best use the pulpit to inform and to guide spiritually, but also to do it with an undergirding of justice and, mm-hmm. and, and a desire for us to really, you know, as, as people of faith, as Christians for, for, you know, yours and I's collective background to move into the world and, and really move, use our hands and our feet to, mm-hmm. to, and our voices and our, you know, ears and all the the pieces of our being that are important to, to change things for the better. Um, I, I can only imagine the, the challenge or the um, kind of internal ethical struggle that you um, wrestle with kind of getting to work on Mondays and, and yeah. recognizing that the, you know, the, the world that you dream of um, is, is not only um, probably unattainable for the near future in a state like Texas, but also that there are people that you're sitting beside on the floor every day whose whose ethical standards are in no way aligned with yours, um, mm-hmm. or quite frankly, the teaching of the Jesus that we serve, yeah. and 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 they are and there is they are playing into the system that they were dealt 400 years ago that very intentionally is seeking to carve out um, and, and eliminate the voices of people that are not like them from the conversation. Um, I, I, I wonder how you, um, how you reconcile those relationships um, Monday through Friday um, with the folks that are um, that, that, you know, are, um, part of the the systemic harm, mm-hmm. even if it's simply by a yay or a nay coming yeah. out of their mouth. Yeah. Um, you know, all good people, you know, I'm sure they raise their children, you know, they're very, they, they, they can be very good parents. They can be good children. They can, you know, pay their taxes on time. They can do all the things that are, um, you know, screwed up standard asks of them. And yet they are sitting beside you on the floor being, you know, feeding into a system that is is silencing those that we're trying to save. How do you reconcile that? Yeah, and I should mention, you know, my imagination is also just limited by my own my own uh, background and identity, right? My own my whiteness, my masculinity, all those things sure. limit my imagination um, about what's possible. So I have to continually press against that to try to expand the limits of of what I'm dreaming of for our, for our community. Um, and that's where, you know, Dr. Robin, your book helps me do that. And, and, uh, and podcasts like this help me do that. Um, and, you know, I think that's, you know, we, as you mentioned, we, we follow a crucified criminal, right. Um, and that, that criminality, I feel like was so embodied in, in the church that I grew up in. Um, we, when I was, it was in the nineties and, you know, I was in elementary school and I remember our, our church was going to, was going to get kicked out of kind of the Presbyterian conference um, because of their, their stance on LGBTQIA plus rights. Right. Um, and, uh, and I remember, you know, half the congregation left and, and I remember the, the tense, you know, meetings in the sanctuary where people went to the microphone and condemned Dr. Jim. And I, you know, I was, I was, um, you know, in, uh, in elementary school and trying to comprehend what all this meant, right? I knew, you know, Dr. Jim made us hammer in these little white crosses on the um, lawn of our church for those who had died of the AIDS epidemic in, in the 90s. And like, you know, those little, when you're little, those, those things don't always compute about the significance. And now I look back and understand what kind of risks he was taking with his own career, which is kind of what I think a, 
you know, a true white trader um, would do, right, um, is risk his own power uh, to do that. And so what a, what a powerful example for me, an intimidating example, right, for I, I told Dr. Robin that I always wanted to be a pastor. That was kind of my original dream. Obviously, I missed the mark and became a politician, which is like just to the just close close to pastor. I, but I mean, look, half the pastors I know are one in the same. Yeah. You know, there, there's not a, yeah, there's not a very far hop from one to another in most in most instances. Yeah, and well, I think the best, hopefully, the best pastors or the best politicians are closer alike. But um, your question is such a good one, and I, and I feel like that's where the true revolutionary nature of love thy enemy like comes into play um, because I, I have to work with, with, with folks who, who have passed these policies that threaten the existence of people that I love. Now they don't threaten my existence for the most part. Um, but they, they threaten the existence of my friends, my loved ones. Um, and, uh, when I got elected, I, I went searching for those monsters, right? I got elected to the state house. I was like, all right, I'm ready to find these monstrous people, who, who passed these, you know, the show me your papers legislation, right? The bathroom bill, um, you know, uh, folks who have refused to, to ban conversion therapy session after session, right? Uh, and, and I didn't find monsters. I found people who loved their kids, who loved their partners, uh, who loved their, their colleagues, their immediate neighbors. And that, that was like a big, you know, something I struggled with in my first term was how they could, you know, vote this way on the floor and then turn around and be so personally decent, right? Um, and, and the only way, you know, and instead of kind of um, deciding to make them my enemy, and I, I tried my best to, to love them the best way I knew how, and I tried to understand them, right, as the natural result of that love was to try to understand and I, the best conclusion I could come up with, and I'm still in this journey, still becoming, as Dr. Robin would say, but, um, you know, I, I realized that their circle of concern was just too small, right? Um, and if they could learn how to, they had a functioning heart, right? I think of the Grinch who stole Christmas, right? <laughs> like, there's still a heart there, just needs to grow a few sizes bigger. And to me, I, I don't know, maybe, to me, that's hopeful, right? Because it means that there's, there's potential there. For, for growth and evolution and change. Um, and maybe that's naive, you know, I'm in my second term. Um, so maybe I'll come back on the podcast when I'm, you know, been there for 10 terms and maybe I won't think the same thing, but I just, I just feel like if we could help them translate how they treat their own kids to how they treat somebody else's kid, a kid they've, they've never met, then we may, we may have a better Texas. You know, um, I'm so glad that you brought up imagination because that is what I wanted to sort of parse out a little bit. Because I find that, you know, and, I, and I've been doing theology in the public square uh, for about 10 or 12 years. <clears throat> and it sort of chose me as I was doing my PhD work. Um, it's not something that I pursued. And so I, I take it very seriously as someone who thinks pedagogically around how we should actually um, – you know, help people or build community or teach things like values and whatnot. And what I found is that I would say probably 90% of, of my audience um, and the audience of this podcast are white folks. And what I've also learned is that um, as you talked about circle of influence, that for a lot of white folks, um, the culture, and it's the water in which I swim in, and I'm a white passing Latinx, and so I include myself in this, is that we actually don't know how to imagine anything other than what's right in front of us. And, you know, I see this all the time in, in LGBTQ circles, um, particularly that, you know, like, Queer folks um, who have graduate education tend to have friends with other people, other queer people with graduate education, for an mm -hmm. example, for an example, right? That we tend to not just silo ourselves with sameness in the name of being different, but we actually ossify that sameness to the point where we can't imagine 
things like how do we bridge? How do we create connection with people who are radically different than us? What do we do with people who are are perpetually carcerated by the state, right? Um, and how do we then even think about shifting systems? And all of those things are connected for me. Mm-hmm. And I think it starts with what you just pointed out with having an awareness that folks just are disconnected from the world around them. And so being from Texas and knowing the Austin community, I love Austin. I spend a fair amount of time in Austin when I'm able. I actually said to Anna a couple years ago, uh, I, I want us to go to, um, Oh, what's the big festival? Um, down there in Austin. ACL or South by? Yeah, South by Southwest. I told Anna, I was like, I want to go to South by Southwest with you because Anna is a seven on the Enneagram and and vomits rainbows and I'm a five on the Enneagram and am an old man. And, but we make a really good pair, uh, unlikely pair, but a very good pair. And so um, I was saying to Anna a couple years ago, like, let's go to South by Southwest. It'd be so fun, whatnot. And, and so just thinking about like the terrain of Texas – in, yeah. in the different communities that exist there, that there is sort of a cultural, like, like generosity and hospitality is like a Texas theme. Mm-hmm. But there, there is also the sort of cultural segregation that has existed over a long time. And so how, like, how do we begin you know, thinking about white folks and the dominant mm-hmm. culture, because it's a question I ask myself all the time. How do we begin to make these inroads that actually help folks like conservative Republicans actually have compassion? Yeah. Right. It's it's so much so much of the time we get caught up in voting around ideology. Right. It's about upholding GOP standards, whatever that means, yeah. which I don't think it means anything anymore now that Trump was president, right? So there's this whole question around what what does it even mean to have a political party if 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 what we're trying to do is do something like preserve humanity, whatever that might mean. Yeah, I mean, the more I've I. And in my political career of elected office, the more I realize that politics is just too small um, for the challenges that we face, especially the spiritual crisis that we face, which I think is at the root of every other um, problem that that we have to overcome. Um, and and as as our country becomes more secular, which I, I understand that that impulse, given the crimes that our that our Christian church has has um, has perpetrated against people. Um, but as we become more secular, we lose that place in those communities to ask these big questions, right? And people try to try to fit that into politics, into like uh, um, into like electoral politics, I should say. Um, and you see that in that some of our politicians have become almost messianic, right? So many of my friends on the left, you know, the way they um, treat Bernie Sanders or um, Congresswoman Ocasio Cortez is is almost like how you would treat a faith leader. And on the right, of course, we know that the cults around around President Trump, um, and and so if we're going to ask these questions about what is what is evil in the world, and how do we face it without losing our own humanity, you know, how do we love those who hurt us? You know, those are some big questions that electoral politics will never answer for you. Um, and and Dr. Rob, when you're talking about growing our hearts and becoming better at compassion. Like anything else, that takes practice and it takes communities of practice, right? Every time I hear about someone being spiritual without going to some kind of church or being some part of some kind of community, I think of folks who try to lose weight without, you know, um, you know, taking part in any kind of program or, or diet or exercise, right? Otherwise, it's just kind of, it's a wish. Um, and that is how I feel about spirituality. Like you have to be a part, it doesn't have to be a traditional church, of course, but you have to be with a group of people that commit to working on this stuff. And I, and I mean, I, I don't know if we'll, any of us are ever going to get there, um, but you have to be 
on the journey and you have to be committed to the journey. Because I, I mean, we talk a lot about the problems with our conservative um, friends and colleagues, but I mean, we've, we've got issues on, on the left too, with not, without knowing how to be compassionate and forgetting to see the humanity in other people. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's, it's, we have got to, we've got to remember that the best movements for radical change in our country, in our world, were all spiritually grounded Right. Whether it was the civil rights movement, which was explicitly Christian. Right. Or, or Gandhi's movement in India. I mean, all of them had some kind they were they they were drawing on a well of something much deeper than kind of election cycle to election cycle. Um, that's the only thing. I mean, I, I think that's what we're missing on the left uh, in this period, especially. And so how do you how do you personally see your role in the work, knowing that the things that it's going to take to change the landscape, both the literal landscape in Texas, you know, talking about, you know, all the concerns that have happened over the last two weeks and how, how, where do you see your role in that knowing that the things that need to change are not things that can be legislated? Yeah, they are not things that can be that can be done by a partisan or nonpartisan vote. Um, so, where, like, where do you fit in that? Where do you? What does you know? What does that end up looking like for you? Knowing that you can't legislate, you know, caring. Yeah, you can't legislate giving a shit. And it's not just legislation; it's also elections. Right. I mean, when you look at you know folks on the left, I feel like we're looking for salvation from election results, and we are consistently disappointed by that. As you're seeing now, because, you know, um, it's you're hiring you're trying you're hiring a politician to make policy, not to renew the spirit of 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 of, of our people. Right. Like that's like hiring a mechanic to provide marriage counseling. Right. Like, right. like you know I mean, like that, that's not what we're supposed to do. Like we have a very limited job to like, you know, politicians, we're supposed to kind of see the world from the weeds, not the mountaintop. Right. We're supposed right. to just see like what's possible in the given moment, given the current constraints. How do I make the best policy possible? That is not, you know, that that is not a spiritual mission, um, which is, what I think, what we need. And yet, how convoluted have we made politics yeah. in making yeah. it a spiritual mission? Yeah. And, and you're always going to be disappointed when you do that because you're trying to do you're putting too much weight on electoral politics to do something it is not designed to do. Right. Um, Joe Biden is not our moral leader. I'm sorry to say. Right. Um, uh, he, he is going to legislate given how many votes he can get in the Senate, um, the best possible legislative package that he can. That's it. Um, he is not meant to lead us out of the moral wilderness. Um, and so when you when you ask about what I try to do, you know, I, I've, I got elected during the Trump era. And so I thought it was my duty to use moral language to draw upon faith traditions, all kinds of faith traditions, not just my own, which got pushback from progressives. I mean, most of the complaints I got were from fellow liberals um, in my own district who were like separation of church and state, right? Which I was like, I mean, I'm not trying to establish a state religion. That's uh, I'm very much against that. Right. Um, but that's not that, that the first amendment is not banishing talk of faith and morality in the public square. Right. I mean, we should celebrate that and it should be diverse and it should be from drawing on all kinds of traditions, um, including humanistic traditions. Um and I, and I think that's something that we, especially on the left, have to do a better job of, right? We have ceded moral language to the right for the past, right. what, 40, 50 years, right? Yeah. And, and, and that is because they recognize that, you know, um, people can't live on bread alone, right? Like, we on the left always try to meet people's material needs only, right? They need a higher, higher wage. Um, they need these benefits. They need a high-paying job, which is true, absolutely true. But people also need meaning, and they need purpose, right? And they need connection. Um, and those aren't things you can legislate with a 12-point plan, right? Um, so I, I've tried my best to kind of bridge that gap uh, as much as I can. But honestly, if we're going to turn this into a therapy session, like, especially over the past year, I've thought more and more about, like, is electoral politics the best place to do this? You know, I, Dr. Robin, I told you that I, that I uh, dreamed of being a pastor. And I thought, like, should I go? Should I go to seminary? You know, is is that the place where that change can really occur? And I've had doubts about whether electoral politics, which I love and I believe in, and I believe in democracy, but I wonder is that is it up to the task, especially 
in a time of climate change, right? Like we're, we're running out of time to, to change our moral foundations. Um, and, uh, and I fear if we don't act, act soon, you know, it might be, might be over for our species. Well, I, you know, I have a lot of thoughts about this and, and, and one is, um, it's not just a spiritual crisis that we're facing. It's actually a theological crisis, which is connected to a moral crisis because as I was trained to in, in the field of theology and ethics is that all theology is ethics because the ways that we believe about certain things, even to like where we buy our coffee are like ethical decisions. And so when we look at things like electoral politics, we can see this at the federal level down to the state level so many of our politics and policies that are legislated and then operationalized in communities have a very particular strand of Judeo-Christian theology attached to them. Anthropology, right? What, what we think about humans, and by that, we mean white-bodied people. And so anybody who is not white is, is in a different anthropological category, right? That shows up in things like mass incarceration or the school to prison pipeline. And so, what, you know, one of the things that, um, and I would love to actually have a lo- longer conversation about this if we ever get the chance, but after the 2016 election, I left my faculty post in Berkeley, and I write about this a little bit, and moved home to the South because. I wanted to be rooted in land that 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 I understood. I, I didn't want to move back to Texas because as a trans and queer person, that felt scary to me. Um, but I thought that if I could move back to the South and like live out my vocational life in the South, could could that create conditions for culture shift? which which might yield different electoral politics, different ways we think about church, whatever that means, right? And so I, th- I think um, very strategically and concretely about how do we actually achieve the kind of world we want? And so, you know, from my migration from California uh, back to the South, Get, you know, created conditions for the activist theology to be birthed, right? And and it's you know, I, I'm a big believer in the diversity of tactics, and 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 I you know, I don't believe in electoral politics, but I still participate in them. Like things like progressivism and liberal progressivism don't actually make a profound break with the dominant system, and and don't actually create conditions for us to live into the vision of what we want, right? And so I think it takes a diversity of tactics. It's why I continue to vote. It's why I continue to participate in the system. Because for me, if we can figure out how to compost the bullshit, the parts of the system that actually need to be um, dismantled and composted, then maybe we can then steward what I'm calling life-affirming systems which theologically sound very Christian to me, but also show up in other traditions. I'm, I'm not just committed to some sort of homogenous society. I, I really believe in a very robust um, cosmopolitanism that is grounded in some sort of particip- participatory democracy. In fact, my next book is on bodies and democracy and the ways that we can actually steward democracy for these moments. And so, you know, I see something like the Activist Theology Project trying to really dig into the root system to help us um, accelerate this imagination that allows you to live out your theology and ethics, right? Um, Will going to seminary help you achieve something? Well, that's still a dominant system, right? Into which you'll be conscripted, and 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 
how do we how do we opt out of these systems that we're conscripted into in such a way that we can live a generative imaginative life that's what i'm curious about yeah and, that, and that's you know i'm i always think of myself as a christian who who hates christianity yep. right and like i always get I always get drawn back into it because nowhere else in no other political philosophy, in no other economic theory, do I find anything as truly radical or revolutionary as the teachings of that that barefoot rabbi, right? Um, which, which I think, as you mentioned, Dr. Robin, you know, um, look a lot like you know uh, the teachings right. of of the Buddha and and from other other great uh, mystical traditions. Um, but I, I can't find anything um, wherever I look that. Um, Really, really is is quite the same inversion of values that I think we need, right? Um, and so, but the reason that I I think um, Christianity in particular can be powerful in in our context and in, in this country is because um, so many of our political opponents share that kind of right. that tradition. Um, it's it's very strange every time I think about it that that the most popular figure in our country, particularly on the conservative right, is this, you know, um, socialist anarchist from ancient Palestine, right? <laughs> like, it's such a strange um, paradox to me, but I feel like there's opportunity there. There is a moral DNA, a moral language kind of encoded into our, into our cultural fabric, or I should say the dominant cultural fabric in the United States. And if we can draw upon that, to, to start to shift the culture towards something that's more life-affirming, life-enhancing, life-furthering, um, then, then we as kind of people with functioning hearts, I think have a moral obligation to do so. Um, but, but, you know, as far as I can see politically, my colleagues on my side of the aisle aren't attempting to do that, right? We are arguing within a very kind of um, neoliberal framework of kind of talking about policies that are about productivity and um, about things that will generate revenue. We are not uh, speaking to that moral language encoded in our, in our cultural DNA. More work to do is what I hear. So yeah. this conversation is so rich. I also want um, our listeners to get a, a, an update from you on how things are in Texas right now. Um, you know, we spoke so much yeah. last week about how um, really devastating the storm allowed things to become, not because of the storm, but because mm -hmm. of the inaction that occurred right. prior to the storm and the way and the way that, you know, your, your systems and your grids are set up. Um, help us help us understand kind of where you all are at now. How are things um, progressing um, you know, Texas has long left the news cycle now, but I have to think that mm -hmm. the national news cycle, at least, I have to think that there um, right. are still things that you're dealing with and still and and other ways that you found that um, this, you know, the capacity for our humanness has has allowed um, some joy to, to to seep into the to that fabric we talk about. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Reverend, for using intentional language that, it's, that it wasn't the storm um, that, that caused the suffering that our, uh, that our state endured over, uh, over the last two weeks and continue to endure. This crisis is not over. Um, we still have a, a water crisis, a food crisis. Um, we have um, folks experiencing homelessness, more folks than, than, um, than were two weeks ago. And, um, and this is the direct result of... Um, Years of underinvestment, years of deregulation, years of privatization, years of neglect, and that those those ideas have been the stated policy of of the Texas government um, for the past twenty five years, and um, we reap what we sow. Um, and this is not this is not just you know based on on um, the blackouts that occurred. Uh, over the past two weeks, this is something that we have seen repeatedly in our state. Um, y'all, y'all may remember the uh, the scandal around um, CPS, 
um, and foster care with kids sleeping in state office buildings because there, there weren't um, placements for them and kids dying in state custody. And that, again, was a scandal that suddenly kind of opened people's eyes, but it had been the predictable result of policymaking for decades and decades. Um, and so this is this is should be a wake up call. What I fear and what I think I'm already seeing happening is, you know, our state leaders will talk a good game. Uh, they will say the right things. They will feign the right outrage on TV. Uh, but then they will rely on the, the national news cycle moving on. Uh, and then we'll go back to business. Right. Um, the business of deregulation and, and uh, privatization. And uh, and I think this should be a wake up call, not just for Texas, but the entire country about the uh, the impacts of climate change with extreme weather events like this polar vortex becoming more and more frequent. And the fact that, you know, climate disasters will become um, become more frequent in future years and the suffering endured from those disasters will be bared by the most marginalized people right. in our communities, right? I mean, rich folks in West Austin, right? Uh, they had their, their lights go out for a couple of days, but they had the resources to, to weather that storm. Um, the folks who are still without quality water, um, the folks who are, um, who are more food insecure than they have been ever before are the black and brown folks in our, in our communities. Um, they're the poor folks in our communities. Um, there are a lot of children, um, those without a political or, or uh, social power. And that's, this is something we are going to see unless we decide to, to address the climate crisis in a serious way. And, and Dr. Robin, as a, as a native Texan, I think you'll agree with me that Texas really could be um, the leader in the fight against climate change. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I talked with my cousin last week who is um, oh, um, a windmill engineer. Um, the, the wind turbines. Yeah. And yep. we disagree politically about a lot of things, right? He associates Democrats with socialism and that's like the buzzword. And I'm like, maybe we need more socialism, sure. you know, um, <laughs> you know, but, but even he was like, um, the, the wind turbines did not cause this ice storm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Actually, the wind turbines mm-hmm. are helping yeah. us. And, and, you know, my grandparents' farm it is full of wind turbines now um, after they passed away and, and the land was given to my cousin, who is a farmer. Um, apparently, he's making bank on having wind turbines on my grandparents' land. Yeah. But, yes, like, Texas could lead in so many ways. And, and mm-hmm. you know, what I love mm-hmm. about Texas is that there is this kind of independent spirit that runs – throughout all of Texas and why we can't collectively harness that spirit in, in the name of being Texans, like floors me. I don't, I don't understand it. And I, and I get it that people like people there, there needs to be room for people who are conservative or traditional. I get it. And also, um, if we live out our theologies and ethics in ways that are generous, it demands a deep posture of welcome for all so that there is room for all of us. Right. Unless we think it's not just a Texas problem. I mean, every state is up against the same kinds of infrastructure tragedies that that, I mean, every state is susceptible to what we just watched Texas experience simply based on a lack of care around both how we are spending our, our taxpayer dollars and how we are ignoring the climate crisis. You know, just because the, the you know, the, the temperatures will be changing and a lot of coastal towns will be seeing a significant change in their literal landscape over the next 30 years. You know, 
flyover states are just as susceptible to a, a, a wide barrage of, of climate issues. Right. Um, and I mean, this is, you know, I, I appreciate that both of you are Texans and I appreciate that, you know, that James, you are, I mean, you're doing the good, you know, true work in that, you know, that state house every day, but this is, this is not just something that, um, that all of us can ignore if, if Texas is not a place where you make your home. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's going to affect yeah. all of us. And, and Reverend, you're realizing that there's nothing, uh, nothing more that Texas uh, wants to okay. talk about Texas. It's um, all right. I'm, I'm a new Orleans, I'm a new Orleans saints fan. So all you cowboy fans uh, are, uh, <laughs> are I, I know it well, but I mean, but that, but that is, you know, there's, you know, I know you all have a national audience and there are folks because of our politics that like to kind of beat up on Texas, but that independent spirit um, that innovative spirit is present every time you listen to a Beyonce record, right? Anytime you listen to Willie or Selena, um, every time you uh, watch the Dallas Cowboys, I mean, you know, that that does sure, embody the sure. spirit of our state. And anytime you benefit from Medicaid or Medicare um, or any of the great society programs, that was developed by by a Texan. Um, so our state has this, this deeply progressive history um, sure. that I think we can draw upon to address this. And, and the reason that I think we can lead is because our state is the largest emitter of greenhouse gases in the entire country. And it's not even close. So like, if we are going to tackle our, our country's emissions, it has to start in Texas. And so I, I hope, you know, the thing that we always think about our state, we think about being big, right? Like big spatially, but big egos, yes. big personalities, but yes. also big All hearts. That. Right. Um, and like, and nothing, and nothing. Uh, this this crisis needs bigness uh, more than it needs anything else. It needs generous, daring, big responses. Um, and I can't think of a better state to lead that than Texas, especially given the last two weeks. And I, I just I refuse to to live through this again. And I refuse to let my fellow Texans live through it again. And I refuse to let anybody else to live through something like this again. Um, and I hope this is a wake up call. I really because I. I I know we're going to see more of this um, if we don't if we don't do something to change our own habits and our systems. We can't thank you enough. We could have this conversation at another hour, and we could solve many more problems of the world, and 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 have and have really just the same level of richness. And we'd love to we'd love to continue the conversation. We'll I know we'll continue it on Twitter and and through our DMs. But um, I would love if you would let our listeners know how they can be in contact with you, how they can follow you, um, how they can watch and, and be responsive to what's going on in Texas and where your all's needs might be. What's the best way for them to, to engage? Yeah. Find me on Twitter at James Tallarico uh, or Facebook or Instagram. Try to keep folks updated. I also try to channel my policy wonk nature into kind of uh, explainers to kind of tell people what's, what's happening at a state level. So much of our politics is nationalized now and it can be a little difficult to access state policymaking, but it's more important now than it's ever been sure. before. And I just want to say that one of the dreams Anna and I have is being able to take this podcast on the road. And, you know, because I love Texas love so much, you know, I would love if we could maybe put a bookmark in this conversation and pick it up um, live in person uh, may, maybe at your um, local church would host us um, and do it do a do a podcast of it because what you know what what I really believe in is is being able to have these conversations it, it in a way that helps tease out some of the theological issues that are at play that that people don't readily see and so I just I just want to sort of say. Um, my porch is always open for food and bourbon. And also we can't wait to take this in person and, and hopefully pick it back up in Texas. I will bring the breakfast tacos, um, but you, you have to agree to sign my copy. Absolutely. Of Activist Theology. Absolutely. And if, that's, yeah, if we can absolutely. make a deal. Okay. Perfect. It's Excellent. A deal. <laughs> well, friends, we are so grateful that you joined us on this episode. We're, we appreciate that you were part of this conversation. We appreciate that you continue to engage with us week after week. Um, as a reminder, you know, follow Activist Theology. 
uh, where activist theology, don't forget activist and theology share a T um, at activist theology on all the platforms. And we'd love to hear what you thought about this episode. Um, please do remember that um, this work um, is important because it's you that engages in it. Um, we want you to get your hands dirty. We want you to figure out how you're going to be um, changing the landscape in your own communities and how, how you're going to be able to do that in real time. Um, Dr. Robin, I'm grateful for another week with you. And when we come back next week, um, we'll both be one step closer to being able to hug each other and um, do this podcast across the table from one another. Yes. Let's get free, y'all. Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember, activist and theology share a T. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by our friends Delta Ray. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. Oh, so early. They show me no.